We got some uh, some wedding pictures here, and we're going to play a little uh, guess who that is. That is somebody in our church. Anybody want to venture again? Now, a couple of you know because you saw before church, so you can't guess. But anybody want to guess who that is? That's right, Carl and Cindy Bender. We were wondering about Carl marrying a 12-year-old. <laughs> yeah, he was 13 and she was 12. There you go. How many years ago has that been? Cindy's waiting for Carl to see if he knows. Roughly 32. Did you say a rough 32? The Hubbards, Don and Ann Hubbard. There you go. How many years has that been? 44. My goodness. You were the picture of 1950 there, weren't you? Yeah. Who do you suppose that is? My parents. That's right. John and Jewel Lunsford, way back in the day. And that's almost 60 years here in June. It'll be 60 years. So there you go. That's right, Larry and Marion. How many years has it been for you? 33 years. Have mercy. <laughs> yeah, they didn't laugh at anybody except us. I take great umbrage at that. There you go. Man, 2028? It'll be 28 in September? 29 September? 28 in September. Neither one of us can remember. There you go. Wow. What uh, what great days. I remember a number of years ago when it was about 15 or so years for us, you know, the anniversary was coming and Sue said something to a coworker, you know, we're, anniversary's coming up. They said, how many years? And whatever, whatever year it was, it was 13 or 14 or 15, somewhere in there. They go, wow, you've been married a long time. You know, and, and in this community, 15 isn't a long time. 28 isn't a long time in this community. But in a lot of the world, 15 years to, be, to last that long in marriage is a tremendous thing because the world has played so fast and loose with marriage, and so has the Christian community, that marriages aren't lasting that long. As we're working our way through the book of Malachi, he's going to talk about two particular problems that the people of Israel had in regard to marriage. We're going to look at one of them this week and one next week and, and learn a couple of truths that us Christians must be pursuing and applying in our lives if we would make it uh, in the long term in marriage. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers? Malachi 2 verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. 
For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now, I want to reiterate something that we said at the beginning of Malachi. We talked about it in our Sunday school class this morning also. But it's very important as we study the Old Testament to right up front to say, what are we supposed to learn from the Old Testament? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says we are supposed to learn, if I could paraphrase it, the great moral or spiritual examples that God gave us through their behavior. There were specific instructions at times given to the people of God in the Old Testament that we are not to repeat. There are parts of the law that we are not supposed to keep. But there are great moral examples that we are supposed to keep, and that's what we are trying to learn as we go through the book of Malachi. Because all of those great moral or spiritual examples are borne out in the rest of Scripture as this particular lesson is. And so as we consider these three verses, we, start of, we sort of need to start at the end and go backwards, or in the middle and go backwards, and that's by doing this. We need to identify, first of all, the sin that he is talking about. Because in verse 10, he doesn't identify the sin, he identifies what's going with it. But in verse 11, he identifies the particular sinful problem, and that is this, Judah, or the tribe of Judah, has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves, He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Stick your bullets in there in Malachi. We'll be coming back pretty soon. But in Deuteronomy 7, we need to get the the picture as we start to understand this problem. Deuteronomy 7 verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them." You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your hearts away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and will destroy you suddenly. God made it very clear right up front with the people, with his chosen people. And here he is reiterating it. We we might say that Deuteronomy 7 is at the beginning of their life as a nation. Malachi chapter 2 is almost to the end of the Old Testament era, uh, just 400 years before Christ comes and the, the New Testament era begins. So at the beginning, he warns them and commands them and instructs them. And at the end, they're not following the instruction. What is the instruction? Very simply, God said that the Jewish people were not to marry, now get this word right, unbelievers. See, the problem here is not a racial problem as in Jew and non-Jew. And back in Malachi 2, he says, what's the problem? He has married the daughter of a foreign god. 
He didn't say the problem is that Judah has married a foreigner. Watched a TV show last night from back in the day when people very clearly believed it was wrong and some of them believed it was sinful for a person of one ethnicity or color to marry a person of a different ethnicity or color. And that is not what this scripture is talking about. You see, we know it's not what it's talking about because Rahab, who was a Canaanite, the very people God commanded them not to marry, Rahab, who was a Canaanite, married a Jewish man named Salmon, and their child Boaz married Ruth, who was from Moab, and both of these Gentile women are ancestors of Jesus. So the problem was not the fact that they were foreigners or of a different ethnicity or country. The problem is belief. Because both of those women, Rahab and Ruth, were believers in God before they were married to Jewish men. In Malachi, the problem is that the Jewish folks are marrying unbelievers who worship other gods. In Numbers 21-29, the Moabites are called the people of Chemosh. Now, Chemosh was a god they worshipped. And so they're called his people. Jehovah has his people, Israel. Chemosh has his people, Moab. In Deuteronomy 32-19, God called the Israelites his sons and daughters. And he says, look, you are my children. Do not marry people who are the children of another God. Now we know in reality there is no other God. But there are people who worship what they believe is another God. And there are people who don't believe in Jehovah God. And God says to his people, do not marry an unbeliever. The term that we're going to use in the rest of this sermon is unequal marriage. Why did Malachi need to give this instruction? Turn with me to Ezra chapter 9. The book of Ezra occurs at approximately the same time as the book of Malachi. Now, in saying the same time, I'm not talking about day by day, but I'm talking about the same era. Ezra and Nehemiah were leaders in the rebuilding of, of Jerusalem, the wall, the temple, reinstituting the worship of God when the people of Israel came back from Babylon. And Malachi is writing into this same time frame, addressing the same problem. You might say Malachi was the preacher and Ezra and Nehemiah were sort of the civil leaders or the, you know, they were, they were like the guys leading the charge to rebuild the city and there was a spiritual tone to that. Malachi is a, is a prophet talking to that time. Look at Ezra chapter 9. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, or the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Now, a key phrase there is, with respect to the abominations. You might want to underline that. 
Because what was the real problem? The real problem was the people of God were mixing in with the unbelievers and participating in their ungodly worship or their worship toward false gods. He says the people have not separated themselves from that. Verse 2, For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. He said the leadership of Israel is leading the way in sin. Verse 3, So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, and I plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard, and I sat down astonished. He's going, how can that be? Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression. Isn't that a great way to describe a a godly person? Somebody who trembles at the words of God. When you open the Bible, what's your attitude? Are you under it? Are you submissive to it? Are you, yes, God, whatever you say? That's what these people were. Let's drop down. Let's go to the book of Nehemiah, the next book in the Bible, chapter 13. Because the the story gets so incredible, you won't believe it unless you see it here. Nehemiah 13, 23. In those days... I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and I cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. What he's saying is, do you think you're better than King Solomon? You think you're smarter than King Solomon? You're going to hook up with these pagan people and they're not going to pull your heart away like they did Solomon? He's saying, look, even Solomon was pulled away. Verse 27, should we then hear of your doing of this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elishab, The high priest was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Now, who was Sanballat the Horonite? you got to catch this. Go back now to chapter 4 of this book. Chapter 4. Nehemiah 4, verse 1. So it happened when Sanballat, here's the guy. This guy is the in-law now of the high priest of Israel. The high priest of Israel, his grandson, married Sanballat's daughter. So it happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant, and he mocked 
the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. That's the guy who married his, his son, married the, or his daughter married the grandson of the high priest. Well, that ought to make a great family reunion. That's what was going on in Israel. I mean, you know, it's, in every organization there are people on the fringe who do things that the organization does not condone or approve of. But this is the grandson of the high priest. This is like as close to the president of the country as you can get. And his grandson is marrying a pagan girl. That's why God said, Malachi, I got some stuff for you to go and preach to the people of Israel. Now again, this command was plain. It was given to Israel several times in their beginning. It's not just a single command there in Deuteronomy 7. And yet, at the end of their Old Testament, of the era we call the Old Testament, they were just fully remarrying. Now, lest you think this is only an Old Testament command, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In the New Testament, God makes the command broader than marriage. There is not a specific command against well, there's one, and I'll refer to it in a minute. But there, I guess you'd say there's only one specific command against marrying an unbeliever in the New Testament. But there is this passage which includes marriage and so many other things. 2 Corinthians 6, 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord or agreement has Christ with Belial? That's a, a God that was worshipped in the Old Testament era. What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with the temple of idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty, the Lord Almighty. God makes this instruction in the Old Testament and He makes it abundantly clear here in the New Testament. And He says, it is a sin for an unbeliever to marry a believer. The phrase unequal yoke is taken from Deuteronomy 22.10 where the command there is to the Israelites, He says, do not take an ox, which was a clean animal, and put him in a yoke or a harness, we call it today, with a mule which was an unclean animal. Don't put them together to plow together. And he's referring to that concept of clean and unclean when he says the yoking. 
There are more relationships besides marriage, but today we're focusing on marriage to say, when you get close enough to another person that you are connected, whether that is the formal agreement or of marriage or some time before marriage, when you are together with them in heart and soul, and it's going to be hard to pull back, that's the moment at which you are yoked to an unbeliever. And God says it's wrong. We need to understand today that this is an issue of sin and righteousness. It's not God up in heaven going, now kids, I want to tell you something that's going to be good for your life. It's going to be helpful for you. I really wish you'd do this. You know, there are times in all of our lives as our kids grow up where we give them advice. And the reason it's only advice and not a command is because we don't have control. We can't enforce it either on the front end or the back end. But God is not like that. God has the ability to enforce His commands both in this life and in the deprivation of our reward in the future. And he says, this is an issue of sin and righteousness. In Genesis chapter, in fact, in Malachi, he calls it an abomination. The word abomination in the Old Testament is one of the strongest words God uses. He uses it to refer to uh, idol worship, to witchcraft. In Genesis chapter 6, we have the same scenario where the sons of God are marrying the daughters of men, the, the holy with the unholy. And because of that, what did God do? He flooded the whole earth and wiped everybody out except Noah and his family and started over. So do you think God is serious when he says this is wrong? And you'll see how serious he is when we get to, when we get to Malachi chapter 2 verse 12. So that is the problem that God is addressing. Unequal marriage. A believer marrying an unbeliever. Now let's go back to Malachi chapter 2. And look at the impact of the sin. And the first impact of the sin is this. There is a, there is a family impact. Or I should say the impact is a family impact. Look what he says here in Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? When you read phrases like that in the Scripture, there, there is a certain limitation that you need to apply. There has been a phrase used for many years, God is the Father of all people. And there are some people who use that to teach everybody's going to go to heaven. God's our Father already. He's our Father by virtue of creation, so He's going to take us all to heaven. It's called universalism. Okay, That's not what God's teaching here. And that's not what God teaches anywhere else in the Scripture. But what He's trying to say to them is, look, all of you Jewish folks... We have one Father, we have one Creator, it's God. Both of those questions refer to the same person. God is our Father, God is our Creator. He's talking about the family nature of the Jewish people. God was the Father of the Jewish people by virtue of His choosing of Abraham and from Him creating the entire nation of Israel. Abraham gave birth to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob to the twelve patriarchs. And those 12 patriarchs, or heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, gave birth to all of the rest of the people of Israel. And so God, by virtue of His choosing of Abraham, is their father. By virtue of being God, He is their creator. And also by virtue of His choosing of Abraham, He is the creator of the people of Israel. All of the people of Israel came from one man, Abraham. 
And so they are all related. And God appeals to that in trying to teach them about unequal marriage. In the New Testament age in which we live, all Christians are part of one family called the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 summarizes it when it says this, By one Spirit were we all baptized into one body. One of the phrases we'll use sometimes is this, We're not an organization, we're an organism. We are not a club, we are a group of people that God has called together. We are part of the whole body of Christ, composed of all Christians of all time. Our current American culture emphasizes individualism. I think one of the examples where individualism conflicts with godliness is abortion. Because the people on the godly side of the issue say it is an issue of life. This is a living being who you do not have the right to kill. And the people on the other side say it is an issue of choice. You ought to have the choice to do anything you want with your body. That is the extreme view of individualism. It is not a godly doctrine, but it is an American doctrine. Other countries don't see things that way, you know, in terms of their families and clans and whatnot. You don't have the right to step out of the clan and do different things, but our American culture is that way. So when we read this and we read this family concern, it doesn't resonate with us right away. But the fidelity to family issue in verses 10 through 11 is, is a big impact of inter-spiritual marriage or, or unequal marriage. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. What was the covenant that God made? Well, we've, we've read it already from Deuteronomy 7. You could also find it in Deuteronomy 6 at some length. God made a formal agreement with the people of Israel. He said, look, this is what I will do for you. This is what I expect from you. And part of that was to marry only within the family of Israel, within the family of believers. They made that agreement. They said, yes, we will follow that agreement. Several times they reaffirmed over the years when Joshua got ready to... To, to leave the planet, he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And all the people said, We will serve the Lord. And as soon as the next generation came up that forgot Joshua, they were living in sin. There were numbers of times when they affirmed the covenant. He says here that by profaning the covenant, they are dealing treacherously with their brothers and sisters. What's it mean to profane the covenant? It literally means to make it common. I have a, a sweatshirt. Some of you have seen me in my green and black and paint speckled sweatshirt. Speckled what sweatshirt. When I do, if it's cold outside and I have to do something dirty, I always wear this green and black sweatshirt. I've had it since it was really baggy, you know, a long time ago. Um, but I always wear that when I'm going to do, and it, you know, for some reason, it's the only thing I have that's never fallen apart in probably, you know, 15, 20 years. And it's a common shirt. I wouldn't wear it to church unless I was trying to make some point in a sermon. Yeah. <laughs> because it is, <clears throat> it is part of my common clothing. Okay. 
I have a suit that I do not wear when I work on the car. It is special. To profane the covenant is to take the special and walk on it and say, it's not special. It doesn't matter. And that's what these people were doing. They had a covenant with the living God wherein He agreed to take care of them. I mean, what more could you ask for in life? And what did they do with that covenant? They said, eh, no big deal. By marrying unbelievers, they walked on the covenant of God. They made it, they made it common. When you fail to obey God's truth, you are treating Him and His Word like an old sweatshirt. When you read His Word and it says, for instance, do not marry an unbeliever, and you go, oh, I'll think about it. You're saying, God, I don't care. The result of unequal marriage, what he's talking about here, he says they have profaned the covenant. Now, what would happen to the people of Israel if they profaned the covenant of God? What eventually happened to them? After many years of God warning them and warning them and warning them, not only with unequal marriage, but many other sins, they said, we don't care about the covenant of God. What happened? They went into captivity for 70 years. The Assyrians came... And then the Babylonians came a hundred years later and carried off a lot of the people of Israel to Assyria and then to Babylon, the same geographical area. And they were there for 70 years as judgment. I guess you could call it going to jail, uh, being away from your home, being punished. You call it whatever you want. But it was you can imagine if somebody came and forcibly removed you and caused you to move to a place where you don't know the language or culture and you're going to live there and you're going to be their servant. That's what happened to them because they walked on the covenant of God. Now, here's the treachery part. How many people does it take for God to judge the whole nation? Not 100%. Not 100%. And by Judah, perhaps we would understand as a tribe here, or perhaps we would understand it broader as the southern, what, what came to be known as the southern kingdom, that half of Israel. They are carrying on this sinful practice. Well, what's going to happen? They are going to call down the judgment of God on the whole people. There is going to be a negative impact on the people of God if this tribe, if this part of the nation doesn't change their ways. Does unequal marriage damage the greater family of God today? I would submit to you it does. And I want to share with you just a few reasons that I thought of. Unequal marriage hurts the body of Christ because if you marry an unbeliever, your growth will be restricted. At best, your efforts at greater godliness will be challenged at worst, you will give up trying to live for God because of the constant disinterest or discouragement of your spouse. In other words, if you're going to overcome the influence of your spouse who doesn't believe in God, if you're going to overcome that, you're going to be exceptional. Unequal marriage hurts the whole body of Christ because your contribution to the body of Christ in an unequal marriage will be limited. 
Are you going to be able to freely spend your time and money and effort and interest in God's work if your spouse is completely disinterested? No. Your children will receive a mixed message. Ultimately, people out in the greater world will discount your testimony and that of your church because they clearly see that you don't hesitate to disobey God. Now, frankly, I've got to tell you, this is a real downer of a sermon. But you know why I want to preach it? And why I'm... I thought about preaching on the whole topic of separation and just including marriage as one part of it. But you know why I want to just blast away at this today? Because if you're not married now and you're considering getting married and you're considering marrying an unbeliever, it will affect the rest of your life and your children's lives and your grandchildren's lives and the great-grandchildren's lives like you cannot believe. And if I can put the fear of God into you about this sin, I will have done my job. It's not my will, it's God's. Christianity is a family. For better or for worse, we're in this together. One of the greatest disservices we can do is to get upset with our family and walk away. Ah, those people out that first Baptist church. Hey, you can leave the church, but you're still in the body of Christ. I got family members that I'm not that excited about. Do I get to just say... See ya. No, I don't. And you don't either. And this is one of those things that going into it, you need to stop and say, hey, you know what? I have a whole body of Christ here that I dare not let down. My joy, quote unquote, short-lived as it will be, is not more important than, the, than our ministry. Christianity is a family. Israel was a family. God said, look, you're hurting the family. You're dealing treacherously with the family. One of the challenges we have to, that, that's, that we struggle with as a church is giving a clear, giving a clear sound about sin and righteousness without giving the impression to people that we hate them. Or that we don't want them around. I, I preached on sexual purity one day and somehow a lady in our church in Tukwila got the impression that if she was going to live in sin, she should not come to church. And she was currently having an affair with a man to whom she was not married, so she left the church. Well, I'm thankful she got half the message right. But the part she missed was, it's time to let go of the affair. No, we're not going to say, oh, 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 you're marrying an unbeliever, no problem. I had, a, I had a family mad at me in Tukwila because I would not marry their believing daughter to her unbelieving fiancé. She knew he wasn't a Christian. He knew he wasn't a Christian. The family knew he wasn't a Christian. I said, let's hold off on your marriage. Let's spend some time in the Word. Let's get this Christianity thing squared away. No deal. They're mad at me because I wouldn't marry him. Hey, folks, 
I want to I make it real clear today what God's position is on this because I can't go past it. Don't come and ask me to marry you if you're marrying an unbeliever. You, you, you know, in fact, if you come and want me to do your wedding, that's the first thing we talk about. You know, I, I remember a mom of a, of a kid in Tukwila that went off to the Navy and was going to come home and want me to marry him to a Japanese girl. And the first question I asked was, does she know the Lord? The first question the mom asked was, well, does she really love you or is she just trying to get a ticket into the United States? Hey, moms and dads, we've got to help our kids. They need us to take the lead in this. Christianity is a family, and we've got to be in this together. Now, look at verse 12. This really, this really gets heavy here. You think it's been heavy so far. And, and I've even taught you a new word here in point three, if you're looking at your notes, the imprecation of the problem. That is not a misspelling. That is not a word that I made up. Um, the most common way that word is used in biblical literature is imprecatory, an imprecatory passage. And it literally means to call down a curse or to pray down a curse, to imprecate. Or in this case, I've called it the imprecation of of the problem. Look what he says. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this. That's, that's pretty harsh. You ever heard anybody say that in church? May God cut you off. May he take you out of here if you're going to live in sin. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this. The next phrase is, if you, as many Bible translations as we have, you've got different, different words for it there. It says, may the, may the man who does this being awake and aware. That's what the New King James translates it. The King James says, the master and the scholar. The American Standard says, he that awakes and he that answers. The, the, the NIV, I think, captures the spirit when it says, whoever he may be. It's saying something like this. It's sort of dividing people into two classes. And it may be the classes of teacher and, and learner. Now, why would he use that class? Because in Israel, there were leaders. There were priests and Levites and so on. And they taught the law to people. And then there were learners. And so what he does is he says, may God cut off both the teacher and the learner. I think what he's really trying to say, whichever words are used in the translation, would be this. The active sinner and the passive sinner. What's a passive sinner? It's a guy who goes along with the flow rather than standing up against it. The priests were saying, it's okay to marry foreign, or the, the, uh, the uh, unbelievers. It's okay to marry unbelievers. And the people were going along with it. And so he says here, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, everyone who does this, everyone who is guilty. In other words, there's no special category where you get excused. <laughs> it's a show on TV that, or the, where the dad's a sitcom and the dad, mom wants the dad to go to church. Dad doesn't want to go and he says, I got a special deal with God. And in other words, he, he, had, he made some deal with God, so now it's okay for him not to go to church. Hey, you know what? I got news for you. There's no special deals. You do not get a special category. Neither does anybody here. And so he says this, and here's the, the thing that you need to understand. In Israel, in this time, he was calling God to actually push these people out of the nation, maybe even to put them to death. 
God did that in the Old Testament times. Great groups of people were put to death from you know, everything from the earth opening up and swallowing them to other kinds of, of plague or whatever. I think he may be praying that on these people. We're not to pray that today. We can pray for God to convict people. We can pray for God to you know, work in their lives. But if you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what did he say happens when you do separate yourself from unbelievers? What happens is God says, I will be your God, you will be my children. I will be your father, you will be my children. What he's telling us here is this, those who sin distance themselves from God. When you sin, you distance yourself from God. It's the old joke about the husband and wife. We, we saw some, old, some young husbands and wives. We were all babies when we got married. Sitting together. You know, we used to have a bench seat. We, we, I can't remember how long it's been since we had a bench seat in the car. We kind of have one now, but not quite. We used to sit right there and hold hands. You know, then the cartoon said, after many years, they're sitting apart, and the wife says, uh, we used to sit together and be so close. What's wrong? And the husband looks over and says, I haven't moved. God doesn't move. If you are distanced from God, it's you that's moved, not Him. And if you choose this sin or any other sin, know that you are distancing yourself from God. If you are extremely involved with an unbeliever in a romantic relationship, and then you say, I want to know God's will for getting married, you cannot know it except that he's already told it to you here. You can't pray to God while you're living in sin. You're distanced from God. God's already told you his will. Separate yourselves. If God wants you to marry a particular unbeliever, do you think God could save that person? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Do you really believe it? Yeah, I really believe it. Then separate yourself from that person until they become a devoted disciple. Oh, I don't want to wait that long. People in Tukwila, they said, we really think he's going to become a Christian. Great! <laughs> when that day happens, then we'll, we'll have a marriage ceremony on the next day. Well, not on the next day. Let's wait and make sure he really knows the Lord. I remember a guy at Nooksack years ago, premarital counseling, came to the Lord. Got married. Never saw him in church again. Hey, are you serious about living for the Lord? Are you serious about your children living for the Lord? What really matters when your kids are, are 20 years older than they are now? What matters? What do, you, what do you think you're going to be saying when your kids are 40? Well, I'm sure glad you married that man or that woman that makes a zillion bucks a year. Man, I am glad for that. Is that what's going to give you joy? Or, or do you think you will like to see your grandchildren growing up knowing the Lord and growing up in Him and playing the piano in church and living a righteous life and carrying on the legacy of righteousness? Parents, you've got to help your kids. This is not just their business. For years... I've told my kids there's only one rule. You must 
date believers because you must marry a believer and not just any believer. One that's actually living for the Lord. Those who sin distance themselves from the Lord. Turn with me to 1 Kings 11. We want to read about Solomon. We read a little bit about him already. We want to read about Solomon in chapter 11 of 1 Kings. Sometimes people talk about all the wives and concubines that, that Solomon had, and they wonder how could God let that go on. We're going to get a little of the picture right here about what God thought. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. But, you know why that word's there? Because God's been talking about how great Solomon is, and now he's going to go, but... But King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after these gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Now David sinned greatly, you know, adultery and murder, lying. But when God confronted him with the sin, he changed. He says, I'm wrong, I'm sinful. He repented, he confessed, he got right with God. But with Solomon, he just kept loving these unbelievers and loving these unbelievers. His heart was not loyal to God. You ought to underline that verse. For Solomon went after Asterisk, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow, did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place. That's just what it sounds like, a, you know, a, a hilltop with a, with a building on it. He built a high place uh, for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Can you imagine if, you know, he had 700 wives, so did he have, were there 400 gods that he built temples for? Verse 9. What did the Lord think? So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. So what did God think? God didn't think much, did he? He got angry at him. Do you know that God gets angry with you when you sin, when you're unrepentant? God's not up in heaven like some human grandfather going, oh, the grandkids never make a mistake. You're not like that, folks. 
He takes this seriously. We should take it seriously. In fact, in Malachi, not only does he tell us that we distance ourselves from God when we sin, in this particular sin, but he also says something interesting at the end of verse 12 of Malachi. He says, May the Lord God cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. What's that mean? I've tried to verbalize it this way. Those who sin must repent, not compensate. You know what it means to compensate for sin? Well, what people think it means, there is no reality to it, of course. They think, you know what, I'm doing sin, so I'm going to do a whole bunch of good, and on the balance, it'll offset. I treat my wife like dirt, but I'm going to take her flowers. You know? I, I go to work late and I lie on my time card, but I'm going to work really hard. You cannot compensate for sin. Compensating for sin is roughly what we call legalism. It's the idea that you're going to earn God's favor by doing a bunch of good stuff. No, and, and here he says, look, bringing an offering to the Lord of hosts... He's saying, cut off this guy. Even though he's bringing an offering, it's no good. What do you need to do? You need to repent. Uh, I put a series of steps here and, and a series of notes. I'm not great on steps and notes here, but I, I want to share my thoughts with you on how to deal with this because I'm fully aware today as I preach this sermon that uh, some of you um, have married unbelievers. Some of you may be considering that. And I, it is not my desire to add insult to injury. It is my desire to protect you from harm. And for you to protect your children from harm as much as is in you. And so what would I say to the unequally married, those who did so on purpose? Now what's it mean to do it on purpose? Well, some people are unbelievers when they get married and somewhere along the line, one of them gets saved. We're not talking to you today. Because you, you were just an ignorant unbeliever and now you got saved. Praise the Lord. Uh, we'll continue to pray for your spouse. But if you purposefully said, I know this person is not a believer, but I'm going to marry him anyway. I don't care what God says. You probably weren't quite that forceful. But that's how God heard it. What do you need to do? Number one, you need to confess your sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven, including this one. Number two, and it's really kind of co-equal with number one, is the word repent. You know what the word repent means? It means to change your mind, to change your behavior. You were going this way, now go the other way. What's the repentance that's needed here? It's repentance over this practice. Do you believe it's wrong? I mean, God says it's wrong. I mean, if, if I've made a theological error here today, will you come and show me after church? Because if you don't show me, I'll preach this again someday. But if what I have said is wrong, you need to repent if you think anything otherwise. You need to say, God, I've been going this way. I've been thinking that it's okay. I've been getting too close to this unbeliever. Um, I need to go the other way. You need to go the other way and leave the results up to God. I like to eat cake. I like to make cake. I have a cake I call Pastor Dave's Prozac Substitute. 
chocolate cake and chocolate mousse and chocolate ganache. But I cannot make that thing look good to save my soul. It tastes great. But you know what you do when you get a big hole in the cake? You just smear frosting over it. You put enough frosting on it, it looks smooth. You know what, folks? You can't smear enough frosting over your life to cover up the sin. It's got to be repentance. You have to change your mind. You have to throw yourself on God's mercy and grace. Say, oh God, help me to do the right thing. Not just to talk about it. Not just to come to church and say, great sermon, Pastor Dave. But to go out and turn around and go the other direction. Number three, to the unequally married, I say stop complaining. If you married an unbeliever, you're getting what you bargained for. Stop complaining and start praying. Say, oh God, I've, I've railed against this unbeliever and I have to stop it. I have to pray for him or her. I have to love her. Start praying, number four, for yourself, first of all, and then for this unbeliever and whoever else is in your family. First Peter 3 needs to inform your actions which tells you to live in a godly way toward your unbelieving spouse. Now to the unmarried, to the unmarried, decide right now, decide right now that you will marry a godly believer only. And I didn't just say believer, I said a godly believer. My kids went to a Christian high school. My son in ninth grade, he comes home, he goes, hey, I want to go to the ninth grade banquet thing. They didn't have dances, but they had these formal dinner things. I want to take so-and-so to it. I said, what church does she go to? Oh, well, she goes to church. You know, everybody at Seattle Christians are Christian. The high school kids have to write their own testimony to get into the school. So, I mean, in his thinking, they're all Christians. They're all going to church somewhere. They have to say what church they go to to get into the school. Okay? I says, what church are you going to? Oh, you know, and he kind of poo-pooed me, ha-ha, you know. I said, fine, whatever. I wasn't too worried about it. I let it go. He comes back to me later. I said, hey, find out what church that girl goes to? Well, she's kind of in between churches right now. Now, I understand there are legitimate times when people are in between churches, but I also understand at the place where my kids went to school, there's a lot of people who kids go to school and the parents don't go to church anywhere. And it tells me something about their Christianity. Because God says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So don't tell me you're a godly, mature, growing believer and you're disconnected from the body of Christ. That's baloney. See, I want my kids dating godly people and they know if they come home with somebody else they know exactly what the first question is to be you need to decide right now parents you need to decide you need to decide what's the standard what's the line in the sand why do we why do we get these other desires and these other thoughts and our kid brings home somebody that's good looking or rich or whatever and we go oh, well you know it's just a high school thing Hey, parents, what are you thinking? Help your kids. They need your help. Did your kids need your help learning not to play in the road? My kids did. My neighbor brought my son home. He was sleeping in the middle of the road. <laughs> like three years old, sleeping in the middle of the road. I'm a bad parent. Your kids needed help learning that, and they need help learning this. 
Will they argue with you? Will they fight with you? Will they? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. So what? What do you want in 20 years? What do you want in 10 years? What do you want in two years? Help your children. To the unmarried, I say, make a vow to God today and pray every day for his help. You know, frankly, if you are a growing, mature Christian, you are going to be desirable to people. They're going to want to date you. They're going to want to have a relationship with you. Decide. Make a vow. Be careful whom you date. Be careful whom you love. Once you give your heart to somebody, oh man, it hurts like the dickens to pull it back. Ask some trusted friends to pray with you for a Christian mate. When I was 23 years old, I was invited to join Whatcom County Fire District 1 Fire Department, and they didn't have to ask me twice. I thought, hot dog, we get to fight fires and save lives. Translate that, we get to drive fast and squeak, skeet water. But I can clearly remember one time going into a house fire, if one of the first times I went inside a house fire with a hose, and I was supposed to go upstairs to the second floor, and as I went up the stairs, I fell through. And I only fell maybe this far, just kind of like, boom, and I'm standing there, you know. But immediately, I learned something. You could get hurt doing this. <laughs> Never crossed my mind. Never crossed my mind. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what an immature fool I was. Friends, you need to take this marriage thing seriously. Because you could get hurt real bad. It should be a big concern when someone is getting yoked to an unbeliever. It should bother you. It should be a grave concern when someone's marriage is disintegrating. It should be a big deal when a new righteous family is formed. Timber Brinkley is getting married. We put the announcement in the bulletin. Marrying a believer. She's graduating from the master's college. He's attending the master's seminary. I assume he's still planning to be a missionary. They're going to be here. The wedding's going to be here on May 28th. That ought to be a big deal. You ought to be here to celebrate a godly family being formed. Whether you know them or not, you ought to be saying, Praise the Lord! A new, fa new Christian family is being formed. It ought to be important to us. May God give us the courage to live out His ideals in this most important relationship on earth. I've put some notes there for you in applying this to your life. I put a whole series of scriptures for you to consider which talk at more breadth about the issue of marriage and entering marriage. Malachi 2, Matthew 19, and so on. I put there, ask God to help you see where your beliefs are faulty. Sometimes you don't know you're thinking wrong. Ask God to help you. And then if you are starting to form a yoke or a strong relationship with an unbeliever, pull back. Or as 2 Corinthians says, come out and let God make it redemptive in His way. Heavenly Father, two of my kids aren't married yet, so the story isn't told in my family. And I want to pray that you will cause them to marry believers. Keep their commitment strong. Keep our commitment strong. Help us not to waver. 
Father, I pray for all of us here. Help us to be strong. We so much want our children, our friends, our loved ones to be happy. Help us to want them to be holy. And help us to encourage them in that way. I pray in Christ's name, amen.